Today on Young Female Entrepreneurs Vegas Tech, I will be chatting with Jen McCabe. Jen is a member of the Vegas Tech community and is one of my favorite people here in downtown Las Vegas. She's a doer in every sense of the word and you will love this interview if you like robots, you're interested in launching a product on Kickstarter, or you're curious about 3D printing. So jump into the combo at hashtag YFEVegasTech and watch the interview. I'm founder and COO of TicketCake.com. TicketCake was one of the first companies to relocate to downtown Las Vegas to be part of the downtown project, which is headed up by Zappos CEO Tony Shea. And it's a $350 million project to revitalize downtown Las Vegas. Our team has been here a little over a year and we have been embraced by the Vegas tech community and we love living here. This is the fifth episode of Young Female Entrepreneurs Vegas Tech and I'll be streaming live the first and third Wednesday of each month here at the Innovation Center, which is a co-working space our team works out of, out of Las Vegas. You can follow me on Twitter at Jackie N. Johnson. And let me tell you a bit about Young Female Entrepreneurs as an organization. It was started by Jennifer Dono, and she's the host and founder. At 28, Jen was featured as a champion of change by the White House for her work with Young Female Entrepreneurs. This organization, it's an online platform that connects entrepreneurial women in their 20s and 30s with new people, brands, and headlines to help them start and grow their business. The YFE mission is to help young women on their path to profitable businesses while building a collective reputation that's philanthropic, successful, multifaceted, and collaborative. Now my guest today is Jen McCabe. Jen is a self-described detail-oriented operations geek. She has experience setting up day-to-day -day operations, managing production and manufacturing, and executing marketing and sales. She is a doer. She's passionate, she's a creative thinker, and she just gets it done. She formerly um, led various aspects of new product lifecycle at a company called Remotive, who was one of the first companies to relocate here to the Vegas tech community. She's a Y Combinator alum, and uh, she's done a lot of really, really cool stuff. So, so excited to have you, Jen. Welcome to YFE uh, Vegas Tech. Thank you so much. Good to be here. Thanks. So my first question for you, let's go back to summer 2010. You were in Y Combinator Startup Accelerator. And for those of you who aren't familiar with Y Combinator, it's a seed accelerator. It's located in Mountain View, California, and it was started in March 2005. Um, y Combinator provides seed money, advice, and connections in a three-month program. Then, then in exchange for that, they take an equity stake in the company. So as of 2013, Y Combinator has funded over 500 companies and they've touched over 30 different markets. So uh, in 2012, Y Combinator was named a top uh, incubator and accelerator by Forbes. It's a cool place to be to meet other uh, entrepreneurs and check out new startups. And Jen was part of it. So what was the experience like? And would you recommend it for other tech entrepreneurs? Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the things that's interesting about YC, when you compare the Y Combinator kind of identity to other incubators like Techstars or now some of the hardware incubators like Lemnos Labs, it's extremely engineering oriented. 
and very usually very highly technical. Um, when Y Combinator funded Joe Gebbia and Brian Chesky at Airbnb, they were the first design founding team. In my batch, there were only four female entrepreneurs and all the other women um, were coders or hackers. So I was not a designer, I was not a hacker, I was very definitely the biz dev and sales type of founder, which on the Silicon Valley food chain is kind of the, the bottom feeder um, of the skill yeah. set. It's, it's viewed as being uh, a way to augment the skill set of engineers, but not being as valuable as people can actually build. And I didn't really understand that until I started interacting with engineering-centric teams, like the ones that were coming out of Y Combinator. Um, and then I realized that it is vital to be able to understand a market and a distribution channel, but you have to pair up with someone who can build and or you have to have a clear enough vision that you can execute on that yourself or assemble the right team around you. Um, so I had a technical co-founder in Y Combinator, Andre Petrov, who's awesome. And um, we built a mobile health solution. The experience was amazing. There were 30 plus companies in our batch um, and we had Indonero, Reportive, Hitmonk was actually in our batch. Um, the value of YC, I think, is not just in going through meetings with PG, um, where he kind of rips you a new one on a regular basis and, and helps your business become something really interesting and amazing and probably bigger than you expected, but also the founder talks where they're completely off the record, but like we had um, Marissa Mayer come in during my batch and give a talk. Oh, and wow. I'll never forget some of the things that she talked about. This was way you know before she was married, before Yahoo, before having a baby. Um, and some of the things that she described being a, a woman in technology were just incredible to hear. Um, YC, I would highly recommend for any team. I think that if you're more of a business development or design oriented team, you might veer toward another incubator like Techstars. Um, <laughs> there's understandably kind of a lot of competition between people who do you know, a certain type of incubator. Um, actually, ironically, Remotive came out of Techstars Seattle. So in the early stage team at Remotive, we had a, we had a YC person and some Techstars guys, and luckily it was not like the War of the Roses. Um, we all got along pretty well. Um, YC accepts, I think it's a very small number, like 2 to 3% of applicants. If you can get into an incubator, I would say go, particularly like Techstars or YC. And if you can get into Y Combinator, absolutely do it. It's worth whatever amount of equity, uh, whatever you have to do for that three-month time period to come out of it with essentially a startup MBA on steroids. So cool. Thanks for giving that insider look at YC because I think a lot of people don't really know what an incubator is or what the best one is or what the experience like is like when you're actually in it. So thank you. Um, so after Y Combinator, you left um, the company, left Habit Labs, to help Remotive bring to market a personal mobile robot called Romo. And um, as, as I said before, Remotive was one of the first um, Vegas tech companies to, to move and to be part of the Vegas Tech Fund. And they made a big splash in the downtown Las Vegas community. Um, so Remotive grew at a really rapid pace while in Las Vegas. What were some of the challenges that the team faced when you were revving the engine to scale? Ooh. Uh, that's a three-hour conversation in and of itself. Um, <laughs> the, the, the task with, with Remotive was really fascinating and unlike anything I, I think any of us on the team had experienced before. Um, we were a group of people that had some business development background and some software engineering background and very little hardware experience. Mm -hmm. And so I think the, our, our founding Mackie, Peter, um, 
who was essentially the creator of the first Romo, like he's Romo's dad, basically. Um, he built the whole initial thing by hand with parts he got online or kind of hacked together um, and actually dropped out of college to, to found Remotive with his co-founders, Fu and Keller. Um, and then we had Fu, who had a software engineering background. And so Fu's hacking together the mobile app that kind of drives the robot around and makes spaces. Um, and then you have Keller, who's the, the transportive sales kind of um, visionary leader who has this ability, this Jobsian type ability to distort reality and absolutely believe that this robot is going to do just about anything. Um, and so it was a really awesome founding team. And I joined the guys and our, our personality fit was amazing. Like immediately we felt like family and it was, it was really odd. None of us kind of questioned it. We just ran in like a, a four person wolf pack. Um, and then the, the big challenge there was growing outside of that initial early stage team where we had great personality fit, adding new personalities, bringing them to a place like it's very unusual. Um, some of the things that helped Remotive grow really fast, but then I think became a potential barrier and scale um, were absolutely necessary at the beginning. And those were things like us living and working in the same apartments in the Ogden. Um, so, so that was one challenge, like trying to separate work life, I think didn't happen for any of us for a year and a half. We just, we worked all the time. We hung out with each other all the time. Um, I don't think my, my family saw me for a year. Um, and, and that was just kind of how it went. And it, it was almost how it had to be. We were working 18 to 20 hour days and always at the computers and figuring out what to do next and solving a lot of the problems that were self-imposed because we didn't actually have roboticists on the team. Um, early on. And so we had, we'd started with this robot that was a runaway Kickstarter success with the first campaign. We had to figure out how to fulfill those orders. That, that was huge, um, actually. We, we didn't have anything like a production line. The first couple hundred robots we hand assembled with parts on cookie sheets on the living room floor in the Ogden with a borrowed IKEA table that I think we had swiped from Tony or, or Zach Ware's apartment and a borrowed like big screen TV that was playing Wally on loop. Um, and like, it was not a technical operation by any stretch. The, the QAQC test, like that's the quality assurance, quality control test for the robot, consisted of Peter lying on the ground and driving the robot over his belly in a cross-shaped pattern and then handing the robot to me and I put it in a box filled with candy canes. Um, so it's not exactly like a high-tech sterile environment. But we, we figured things out fast and I think one of the things we figured out is we were all incredibly passionate about building a product that could be put into anyone's hands. So one of the challenges that we had at Remotive was taking very advanced technology, um, machine learning, computer vision uh, from the software side and from the human computer interaction side and very small level operational details like where do we get this many motors in time? How much is it going to cost us? Will this robot pass any of the safety or certification testing that we need if we want to sell it anywhere other than our website or Kickstarter? What kind of box do we put it in? You know, does the software actually work? We, we had no idea the answer to any of these questions. We just had to kind of figure it out as we went along. Um, so I think we made a lot of mistakes early on that actually early stage hardware teams now can learn from and avoid. Um, but the biggest barrier to scale was probably, I think, when we reached the point where um, we knew we needed more and more advanced roboticists to solve some of the high-level challenges that would make Romo really functionally useful in an everyday setting. So these are things like the robot being able to remember, uh, map a room, use computer vision so that when he sees at the edge of a table, he doesn't drive off. 
And that's actually a really complex technical problem. It's been solved in very advanced, expensive robotics, but no one has put it into a $150 robot that you can buy you know, online and give to your eight-year-old, and it's, it's safe and fun. Um, so it was, it was quite a challenge. And then as we added people to the team, how, the, how our skill sets had to grow um, in order for the company to scale. And, it, and there are some instances in a startup where you realize people just are not going to scale. Um, either your, your own skill set is not going to scale or someone else's skill set is not going to scale. And what you do when that happens is a really complicated thing. And it, and it went from, what th so three founders to how many in how many months? It was like 18, 22? Yeah, that's, well, we, like that. like, yeah, we had four and then we had six. So we brought on two friends of the guys all grew up, the founding team all grew up in Arizona. We brought on two of their friends, um, Zach and Bobby. And um, then we brought on a, a firmware engineer, Aaron, from iRobot. And Aaron was splitting his time between Boston and, and Vegas. Um, so then we were at seven. Then we brought another software engineer, Jimmy, from Arizona that the guys had worked with. Um, so then we were at eight. And I think we were right up to eight people when we had kind of like a sentinel event. Um, and that was Keller going to a meeting with a large retailer um, that makes electronics and kind of selling them on the idea of carrying our very early laser-cut acrylic lipo battery robot. Um, and we realized pretty quickly that like this robot, we, we weren't sure how to package it, we weren't sure how to market it or sell it, but we knew that this store wanted it and they wanted it in quantity. And we realized we didn't know how to produce in quantity. Um, and so we knew that we would have to do something drastic and that ended up being actually jumping production to China about seven months into the company's history with an eight-person team, none of us had production or manufacturing experience. Um, so that was, that was kind of the next weird phase of growth where we had to navigate China as a really early stage team. Um, and the way that we ended up doing that was really weird. Um, I actually went with our founding Mekki Peter and we used a company called Dragon Innovation which has a bunch of people from iRobot and Hasbro. They're absolutely amazing. They've also worked with Pebble. They've worked with Orbotics, which makes Sphero. Um, and they kind of, they help you write the package of information that you need to take to factories in China to try to sell them on building a small volume of your product. And then they'll sometimes go on factory tours with you and they provide a variety of other resources when you're on the ground in China. You can either have their employees on site all the time um, or you can use their, their time kind of piecemeal. But they're absolutely amazing and I think they really kind of saved us in a lot of instances. So Dragon helped us set up our factory tours we hopped on a plane, um, and we had just talked to Brie Pettis at MakerBot, who had used Dragon Innovation early on in the in manufacturing MakerBots in China. And MakerBots are 3D printers. Um, the company was just uh, like did a merger acquisition with Stratasys. Um, so they had tried to jump all of their production overseas and decided to pull back a bit and start doing some manufacturing in New York. Um, and so Brie gave me some really blunt advice on basically how not to fuck up China. And I wrote it all down, packed up a big suitcase, and told the guys before I left that there was a 50-50 chance that I wasn't coming back for a couple months um, until we had robots coming off the production line. And everybody, we were all sitting like around the whiteboard, and I was like developing out this production development schedule, not knowing what the hell we were doing, and told them that, and they kind of laughed. And they were like, yeah, whatever, we'll see you in 10 days. Um, sure enough, we got there, we found a factory, and everyone's advice was you have to have someone from your team on the ground checking every detail and that person doesn't necessarily have to have a production background 
they have to be anal and detail oriented and obsessive about quality. And if, if that person goes to China, then they'll follow through. Um, they have to be able to deal with the people there, but they don't necessarily have to speak Mandarin. So I didn't, I didn't speak any Mandarin or Cantonese before I went to China. Um, and so we went and I ended up, I put Peter on a plane, he flew back, and I lived in China for the next five months at an apartment that was 15 minutes from our factory until we hit um, engineering prototype one, which is a production stage before you go to production ramp. So. Wow, that was- <laughs> that's crazy. So I, I have someone here on the chat um, saying I want one of those. They're looking at the the remotive video and and saying how cool that is. Uh, pretty cool. Well, so um, so to track back a little bit, so remotive did a Kickstarter launch. So what was it like doing that? And what would be your tips? Maybe two or three tips on how to to do Kickstarter effectively. Yeah, it's a great question. So the first the first thing about Kickstarter. Um, or Indiegogo or Self Starter or any of the pre-order distribution channels, which are now becoming quite legitimate um, as a way to sell product or move product. Um, the first thing about it is when we were looking at distribution channel planning or sales planning for Remotive, that's kind of like, are you going to sell your product online? Are you going to sell it on your website? Are you going to sell it on Amazon? Are you going to sell it in stores like Brookstone? Are you going to sell it in big stores like Target or Walmart? at what price point, in which area of the store, and um, how much does it cost you to make it. And when we were looking at that whole mix and swirl of things, we had produced the first robot, and that Kickstarter was like in the early days of Kickstarter, where you could still just get away with like a video you'd done on your iPhone and you know two paragraphs of text and be funded. But in the, in the year between that first Kickstarter and the second one, where we introduced the blue and white robot that you see now, um, Kickstarter changed a lot. It became much more professional. So the first thing is do your homework in your category. Um, figure out if a pre-order campaign is actually economically worth it for you. The other thing to realize is you can do the best planning in the world and pre-orders are still a hit-driven business. Um, one of the biggest complaints about retail sales channels is that they're hit-driven. You, you put something out there and you kind of hope it's the next Furby or whatever. Um, but you don't really know. You just kind of rely on your marketing spend and then kind of pray. And this is the same thing with pre-orders, actually. You, you kind of have no idea. You can do the best research and preparation in the world, but you need to know exactly how much is your break-even mark for funding your campaign and funding the fulfillment of what you think the upper limit of items that you're going to move is, and make sure that you set your campaign funding target somewhere above that uh, dollar sign. So it, it is actually highly quantitative in terms of the planning, and I think... For, for us, um, I did like this deep analysis of other robots that had sold on Kickstarter between when we launched and, and our actual launch and projected out, I thought we could get a 1.5x campaign above what we had done before and that would be about it. Um, there was some debate about that at Remotive, like the guys wanted a way bigger like blowout campaign. But based on the analysis I was running, like robots were not being funded above like 200 or 300K on Kickstarter. And so I was actually really happy. We set the target just right, um, and then we, we came in just above that campaign. The other two pieces of advice I would give are it's extremely content-driven. Someone needs to be like spending two to three weeks of time putting together all the content for Kickstarter. So planning out what tiers are attractive, writing that copy, writing the copy for the page, setting up a video that's really attractive, um, doing initial press outreach so that when your campaign goes live, they already know about you, they know your name, and they're ready to cover you. 
Um, and then the third thing is it's extremely time consuming, way more than anyone thinks during the campaign. So if you don't get back to people in under 24 hours, if they leave comments or send you emails, their expectation now is that they're going to be very well taken care of during that campaign and kept very uh, well updated. And so that takes a lot of someone's time. It took about 50% of my time for the month of our campaign. And then it took probably 25 to 50% of my time for the next three months thereafter until we began shipping and fulfilling those orders. Wow. Those are good. Um, um, I want to jump back to the chat here. We have at Ryan Lee Cox. And he was wondering what the hardest part is about being antiquated to living in China for five months. What was the biggest struggle there? <laughs> Right. Oh, right. Oh, man. Oh. Where to begin? Um, yeah. Because we, because we've talked between ourselves, so I'm interested yeah. to hear what you say. Yeah. Yeah. Oof. Uh, um. There were some parts that were like equally hard, but equally beneficial and fascinating. The first was realizing most of what's written about China is wrong. And if you go in with the assumption that China's trying to screw you, you will get screwed. Like it's like walking into a used car sales lot and thinking that the guy is going to pull one over on you and sell you a lemon. Like I think our perception of China is really, really faulty, and you don't know that until you get there. Everybody in China makes mistakes. Your team will make mistakes that are design flaws. Their team will make mistakes that are production quality and assembly flaws. Their suppliers will sell them cheap components and they won't notice and they'll put that in your product and somebody has to catch it. Um, and you have to decide if that's your responsibility, their responsibility, or a shared responsibility. And I think that one of the most surprising and challenging things was realizing that the more you approach it as a shared responsibility, the faster your product will move, the better your relationships will be, and the higher the quality of that product will be. Um, and you don't, again, my surprise was you didn't need an engineering background or you didn't have to speak Mandarin to do that. It was almost like practicing like forensic diplomacy. You had to read people's faces and their body language and really get to know the engineers and QAQC people that were working on your line, get to know the factory management staff, eat in the canteen or cafeteria with them, um, you know, get them to give you a Chinese nickname, all these kinds of things that are actually building a really deep relationship because that will carry you through when the shit hits the fan and it does on a regular and recurring basis when you're doing production. Um, so that was the first thing. The second piece was it was lonely. Um, I had lived with like, you know, eight 22 year olds or whatever in kind of the dorm room that is the Ogden in downtown Vegas with a really tight, awesome community there. And then I went, I was kind of airlifted into China, into rural China, not speaking the language in a city where I was the only person that looked like me for miles and miles and miles. I was such a curiosity that the police came knocking, the Chinese police came knocking on my apartment door and I thought I was like done. I thought I was getting exported or like, you know, put in Chinese prison and oh my God, nobody's going to know what's happened to me and the robot's never going to get built. And they just wanted to take a picture with me wow. <laughs> and the robot. They, then they wanted to take a picture of the robot and then they wanted a robot and I was like, oh, top secret, no taking the robot. Like nobody in China is getting their hands on our robot, um, patent protected. So. That was just kind of, that sort of thing was hilarious. Um, to, like the food was, so I almost never, France. like the guys when they went to China, they got like, we got rid of the apartment and they stayed in Hong Kong um, and or they would go like eat at restaurants and I was like, no way. I would go to the Chinese market that was two blocks away, like 
pick up whatever looked good and it didn't look like anything I'd ever seen before. Um, take it home, wash it off with hand soap and then cook it with like a wok and, uh, or a soup pot and chopsticks. So that was a challenge, but it was kind of, it's kind of awesome actually, I have to admit. Well, okay. So, so my favorite quote in this interview thus far is that you, you thought you were being taken to a Chinese prison and you're worried about the robot. I love that. Oh my gosh. Yes. No, absolutely. I was the most worried about the robot. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Because the, the, the thing that, that you read in China, if you read like, first of all, a lot of the books about China are 10 to 12 years old and they're from larger multinationals who went in when most of what companies did was partner with state-owned enterprises where there was a lot of like there was some bribery and some icky stuff that goes on and so don't read any of those books those books are kind of like reading about the United States after the Second World War um, they're just not that functionally useful for you you should read the blogs from companies that are coming out of the incubators like Lemnos Labs and especially Hackcelerator um, the blogs of companies like Helios H-E-L-I-O-S and Fabule F-A-B-U-L-E are phenomenal. They, they have pictures up of factory visits, they tell you what to look for, they tell you about the electronics market in Shenzhen which everybody who goes to China visits and knows about and buys components from. Like don't, don't bother reading old books about China. Find companies that have been to China in the early phases online and reach out to those people. Um, but yeah, I mean you hear about copyright nightmares all the time and it's so easy to go to the electronics market and see like copies of HP printers and copies of Apple stuff, copies of Roombas. And so I was super paranoid that somebody would copy our robot. Um, and who knows, maybe they have, but not that I ever saw. <laughs> wow. So, so my next question is um, about a tweet you sent from your Twitter account, at Jen S. McCabe, um, back on July 19th. So you said, being passionate about X is not the same as being great at X. The things you're insanely great at are your competitive advantages as founders. So what are things that you think you're personally insanely great at? Somebody play Jeopardy pause music in the background. Um, I think what, what Remotive taught me and what China taught me and what Vegas has taught me is actually more what I'm bad at, <laughs> which is this whole long, scary list of things. Uh, I suck at talking to engineers. I tend to make stochastic leaps rather than logical or rational arguments. Um, I have no tolerance for delay. I have no patience for small talk. I don't need praise. I'm extremely intrin intrinsically motivated. Um, just about all I've got going, I don't have an engineering background. I didn't go to an Ivy League school. Just about all I've got going for me is determination. Um, and I think that that in, in ops and production or motive, I didn't know that you weren't, and naivete, right? Um, I didn't know that you weren't supposed to be able to go to China with a design that wasn't even finished and have robots coming off the production line nine months later. Like that's supposed to be impossible. And I didn't listen. Like none of us listened to that. It was just like, we have to get this robot ready to go by Christmas. We have to get this robot ready to go by Christmas. And so I think I drove myself and everybody else crazy and to scary stages of burnout. Um, and so I think another thing that I learned that I am good at is recovering from burnout. And I think if you're going to be an entrepreneur or you're going to be in early stage startups, my question now in interviews with people or in, as, an, as a new investor, which we'll talk about later, talking to founders, I'm like, well, have you ever burned out? Okay, how long ago? Um, because if a founder hasn't burned out, the likelihood that they're going to hit that point 
is still new and somewhere in distant in the distant future. And that's scary for me because I can't predict what's going to happen. If I'm sitting there talking to that founder and I'm thinking about mentoring them or, t or learning from them and they're teaching me or maybe investing in them and they can tell me about their own burnout story and how long ago it was, then I know that they're going to recover. Some entrepreneurs hit burnout and do not recover. They go to graduate school or they go to um, a safer job like a, a PM at another software startup or something like that. Some people kind of never get back into it. And that, I think, learning that about yourself, learning if you can come back is a really important part of entrepreneurship. And I definitely found out that I could do that, which I guess means I'm fortunate or stupid or both. That's so, that's so great, Jens. Thank you. Um, I'm noticing from the chat that I have yet to say that you have left Remotive. Oh, yes. Yeah. On to new things. So for everyone in the chat, she Jen is no longer with Remotive. She did great work there, and she is now on to new projects, which is what I wanted to ask her about now. Um, from speaking to you over coffee or just seeing you around downtown, I've talked to you a little bit about what you're up to, but why don't you share what you're able to announce now? Sure. Um, so first of all, Remotive is awesome, and if you want a Romo, uh, the CEO, Keller, his email is Keller, K-E-L-L-E-R, at Remotive, R-O-M-O-T-I-V-E dot com. Tell him I sent you and make him send you a t-shirt. <laughs> I love your t-shirts, by the way. Really, take her up on the t-shirt. They're awesome. They say, I heart robots, and they, they always get, like, everybody loves them. Um, but, no, Romo is amazing and getting better day by day. And the team at Remotive is working incredibly hard to ensure that the experience continues to improve over time and that Romo does awesome new things with every new software update. Um, so my time at Remotive was amazing, and when I left, we were I, I had done ops and production, I'd done marketing and sales, um, I'd started to do our uh, set up kind of a business insights team, which was based on Zappos's customer loyalty team, which is you know world renowned and phenomenal, and their business insights team, which is their analytics. And so I'd set up began to set up that team and was moving more towards the sales type of position, like a VP sales role, which there's a certain type of personality that thrives on that, and it's not me. Um, I'm okay at it, but it doesn't drive me repeatedly. Like multiple rapid problem solving drives me repeatedly, and new challenges. Um, always being able to learn and expand my skill set. So I kind of reached the point at Remotive where I was looking at a, a position that was stabilizing and repeating, um, and that was not where I wanted to be. So it was a tough decision. I love all of the guys and girls there, and I am love that robot. I've loved that robot since like the day um, we drew him. But the the time came for me to leave. So I talked to Tony and Fred uh, downtown. We were on a walking meeting in Vegas and it was like 110 degrees and we're all like dying. Um, and I was telling them that I would love to stay in Vegas, but I also, I was kind of burnt out and I wasn't sure what I was going to do. And I was interviewing in San Francisco and New York um, with hardware companies, big and small. Um, and Tony asked if I would stay and work on a 3D printing initiative, which we later called Fab Labs. Um, and the goal there was to look at like the current state of desktop 3D printing, which is really fascinating, and whether or not it would be good for our community in Vegas um, to express creativity and combine people who are engineers and technical um, and with the families that are relocating downtown and the people that work at Zappos that are moving downtown in less than a month now. Um, and we looked at the current state of the technology and the assessment there after we did cool stuff like we had Motorola come in and do a make-a-thon um, and we learned that like the, the existing technology is awesome 
but there are a lot of, there's some material science challenges. It takes a long time to print something. Um, the, the printers are still relatively expensive, 1100 to $1,700 or something. And at the industrial end, they get really interesting, but you're talking about a 10K printer and expensive materials and someone who needs a little more machine and um, computer-aided drawing and, and CAD design skills. So my recommendation to them was, yeah, it's awesome, but you should just find somebody who wants to like sell these printers here in like the container park, or you should partner with Shapeways, which is the largest 3D printing company in the world. Um, so I went back to them. I was like, yeah, I, I, we'll, we'll do awesome 3D printing stuff here, but it's not, it's like not enough for me. Like I'm not, it's not the right fit for my skill set. Um, and so the next thing they, they asked me to do was look at hardware companies that were submitting um, proposals either to Tony or Zach Ware or one of the other Vegas Tech Fund partners um, to the Vegas Tech Fund, which is a $50 million seed stage fund that's part of the downtown project, um, to see if I thought we should fund them. And so that was almost like an analyst role. So I started doing that, didn't see anything that I thought was really fundable, um, meaning I was looking for like a strong hardware component, a strong software component, big distribution channel, um, big market, uh, big vision, and an, an interesting founding team. The people who end up in Vegas are, are uh, they tend to be really interesting founding teams. And so I wanted to make sure there's a good culture and personality fit too. And went back to the guys. We went on another walking meeting in Vegas um, and told them that I wouldn't recommend funding any of the companies we were seeing. And Tony's like offhand remark to me was, well, well I'll go find some. And be careful when you say yes to Tony because you'll end up doing things you never expected. And so I was like, oh, okay, how hard that can that be? Um, actually not understand that investing is really, really hard and very risky and, and threatening and intimidating because you're handing away chunks of money and you have no control over what happens with the companies after that. So you're basically kind of funding the founders' educations, um, especially at the seed stage because they're just so risky that, you know, the statistic I think is like one in 10 seed stage companies will successfully get to the next, like a next round of fundraising. And even less than that will have a successful exit, meaning an acquisition, um, whether it's a talent acquisition, which we call an aqua hire, or an acquisition by a larger company for their technology, um, or some kind of huge event like an IPO. That's like, you know, a one in several hundred thousand chance. Um, and most investors in their careers will not ever invest in a company like Facebook or Google or Palantir or Dropbox or Airbnb. The best investors in, have invested in several of those companies. And um, so now my new gig is investing in hardware. There's a, it's a separate portion of the Vegas Tech Fund called Nimbus, um, which is actually not named after the Harry Potter broom. It's named after uh, the type of clouds, cumulonimbus, that uh, have precipitation. So the, the inside joke for Nimbus is we're the Nimbus Fund and we make it rain, um, which nobody really appreciates, but I have to have I fun appreciate with. it. <laughs> You're my favorite geek ever. Uh, it's like, you know, it's a weather joke. Like it's, yeah, I uh, appreciate it a uh, lot. <laughs> I'm killer at parties. So um, the, the, the really exciting thing there is that we get to – the hardware is so new, like the new maker movement and the new companies and teams and products that are coming out of Kickstarter and Indiegogo are so fascinating and exciting. And the problems that they encounter after they do a pre-order campaign are so huge and interesting that it's like unlimited problem solving, which for me is like Christmas. It's like just pick up a package and like, woohoo, there's five problems in there to solve. Um, and so that... The, the growth of the hardware industry, I think, will be huge over the next three to five years. 
especially because my mentors that are in bigger brands, like they're, these are execs at Mattel, Hasbro, like Stella and Dot, uh, Zappos, Amazon, iRobot, um, they're all interested and fascinated by what's coming out of these campaigns. And it reminds me a little bit of the early days of when they like first encountered social media and they were like, what, what are the twits? What am I twitting? Um, and they didn't really know how to use that medium. They didn't know how to attract people through those channels. And so I think that they'll get more and more involved in hardware. Um, they'll begin to partner with early stage companies. They'll begin to sell, acquire, or distribute their products. And they might even make some acquisitions of their own when they see really talented, innovative teams that uh, build something awesome for their specific market or customer segment. And we need early seed stage investors to help de-risk for those companies and get them ready for series A and B and those really big, amazing opportunities. Very cool. Well, Jen, Vegas is so lucky to have you. And I'm really lucky to call you a friend and I have a million more questions that we'll have to um, talk about over drinks sometime soon. But if you have questions for Jen, she's very accessible on Twitter, at um, Jen S. McCabe. And um, thank you again, Jennifer, for, for coming on and taking time to talk about what you're up to. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And yeah, if anybody has questions, just shoot me, find me on the Twitters uh, and I'll get back to you soon. <laughs> Very cool. Well, next episode for Young Female Entrepreneur in Vegas Tech is happening on Wednesday, September 4th. I'll be here at the Innovation Center and I'll be talking to Teresa Fetty. Um, Teresa is CEO at Provident Trust Group and she was named in Fortune's 10 Most Powerful Women Entrepreneurs in um, 2012. Her company is here in Las Vegas. Um, she has amazing knowledge of the financial industry, but she also uh, has a lot to offer to entrepreneurs and to tech startups. So hopefully I'll see you next time. Thank you for tuning in. Thanks again to Jen McCabe, the guest, and I will see you guys soon. Bye.